Then this evening in your Bibles, we would invite you to turn to Psalm 5. In your pew Bible, you find this on page 618. After we read from the inspired Word of God that we believe to be infallible and inerrant, we'll also be turning our attention to what we receive as a faithful summary of the Word of God, the Heidelberg Catechism. Uh, This evening, we come to consider Lord's Day 4, and you can find that in your Forms and Prayers book in the pew rack on page 204. I have chosen to read Psalm 5, and I intend to read it in its entirety, but I would immediately draw your attention to what is stated in verses 4 and 5. There, David writes, For you are not a God who takes pleasure in wickedness, nor shall evil dwell with you. The boastful shall not stand in your sight. You hate all workers of iniquity." But for context, we begin reading again at verse 1. Give ear to my words, O Lord. Consider my meditation. Give heed to the voice of my cry, my King and my God, for to you I will pray. My voice you shall hear in the morning, O Lord. In the morning I will direct it to you, and I will look up. For you are not a God who takes pleasure in wickedness, nor shall evil dwell with you. The boastful shall not stand in your sight. You hate all workers of iniquity. You shall destroy those who speak falsehood. The Lord abhors the bloodthirsty and deceitful man. But as for me, I will come into your house in the multitude of your mercy. In fear of you, I will worship toward your holy temple. Lead me, O Lord, in your righteousness because of my enemies. Make your way straight before my face. For there is no faithfulness in their mouth. Their inward part is destruction. Their throat is an open tomb. They flatter with their tongue. Pronounce them guilty, O God. Let them fall by their own counsels. Cast them out in the multitude of their transgressions, for they have rebelled against you. But let all those rejoice who put their trust in you. Let them ever shout for joy because you defend them. Let those also who love your name be joyful in you. For you, O Lord, will bless the righteous. With favor you will surround him as with a shield. Thus far our reading from the Word of God. We then read Lord's Day 4, which has three questions, the first being question 9, which asks, but doesn't God do man an injustice by requiring in his law what man is unable to do? And the answer, no, God created man with the ability to keep the law. Man, however, at the instigation of the devil, in willful disobedience, robbed himself and all his descendants of these gifts. Question 10 continues by asking, will God permit such disobedience and rebellion to go unpunished? And the answer, certainly not. He is terribly angry with the sin we are born with as well as our actual sins. God will punish them by a just judgment both now and in eternity having declared, cursed is everyone who does not observe and obey all the things written in the book of the law. Question 11, but isn't God also merciful? And the answer, God is certainly merciful, but he is also just. His justice demands that sin committed against his supreme majesty be punished with the supreme penalty, eternal punishment of body and soul. 
a congregation of the Lord Jesus Christ. A humanity often likes to plead victimization. This is nothing new, although I do believe it is becoming more and more prevalent, but the human race has a long, long history of pleading that they are victims. You think already with the historic fall of Adam and Eve, when confronted with his own rebellious action by God, Adam quickly turned to the woman whom God had given him. And Eve imitated the actions of her husband when she was confronted with the inquiry of what she had done. She quickly turned and pointed out uh, the temptation that Satan had brought her way. And don't we find this also in our own culture? So many times the expressions of horrific evil are attempted to be explained away by some reference to some outside force. Maybe even perhaps those who are sworn to uphold the law, the police force, maybe they are even pointed out in some unjust accusation and say, well, the reason that the crime rate is the way it is is because we have these law enforcement agents. If we didn't have law enforcement, there wouldn't be law-breaking. So the reasoning of humanity goes. Parents often encounter this in their children. But mom, but dad, that, that rule's not fair. And that's why I, I violated it, because the law, the rule isn't fair. Perhaps we're given a violation for speeding in our vehicle, and our rationale in our mind is, well, that speed limit is set at an unacceptable standard. These are just some of the examples of what I mean by humanity being plagued by this automatic resort to saying we are victimized by some external circumstances. The fault, we like to say, isn't really with us. The fault is with that outside of us. And what audacity it is for human beings to imply that the fault may even, in fact, lie with God Himself and with God's justice. And our instructors in the Heidelberg Catechism, as they unfold biblical truth step by step, they want to deal with these subtle and perhaps also blatant attempts to escape from the justice of God by bringing these questions up one by one in Lord's Day 4, identifying the potential objection that a human being would raise to the justice of God and answering that objection. And in large part, that's so that at the end of Lord's Day 4, every mouth may be stopped. And all of the attempted excuses can be dealt with. So that initially, but also continually throughout our lives, we might come to the point where we say, yes, I am a sinner who by nature am in a miserable condition because I am confronted with the reality of an infinitely just God. Now we don't just stop there. We very quickly move into the realities of God's mercy and of His grace in and through the Lord Jesus Christ. But in order to get there, every mouth must be stopped. And we must acknowledge that God is 
perfectly righteous in all of his requirements. And so tonight we want to look at our theme, the justice of my misery. We've put the word my in there to make this personal, not individualistic, but personal. And our catechism, of course, has this a rhythm of it, of a personal acknowledgement that I need to know my own misery. We're not talking about the misery of society at general. We're not talking about the misery even of a perhaps a unbelieving acquaintances that we know who live in the midst of this world, giving unbridled expression to sin. We're talking about our own misery. And misery is that state of alienation, that state of banishment, uh, that being far from the friendly fellowship of God. Now, the idea of misery, I believe, is really captured uh, in Psalm 5, uh, verse 4, where it says, nor shall evil dwell with you. The boastful shall not stand in your sight. That really captures the essence of what our misery is. By nature, we are evil. And by nature, God is infinitely holy. And our misery is, is that evil cannot dwell in the presence of a holy God. Well, as we begin to recognize uh, these truths, we'll unfold our theme by first of all looking at our misery is just given the law's demands, and then our misery is just given man's ability, and then our misery is just given God's nature. So our misery by nature, I'm referring here, and of course, apart from the work of Jesus Christ, apart from God's grace, apart from God's mercy, if we consider ourselves, our own person, my body, my soul, and if I were to consider that for a moment, separated from any influence of God's grace and God's mercy and God's redeeming love in and through the Lord Jesus Christ, in and of myself, I am in a miserable predicament. And my miserable predicament, first of all, is evaluated in line with the law's demands. And by the law here, I'm not referring to civil laws the laws of our nation, the laws of our state, the laws of our city. We're referring to God's law. And God's law, especially as it is found, expressed in the Ten Commandments, written in stone, is an expression of God's very nature. And so God's law is holy. God's law is perfect. The psalmist mentions this in Psalm 19 where he talks about the law of God is perfect, converting the soul. And we just want to, first of all, state that for all to hear. God's law is perfect. There is nothing lacking in it. And in its perfection, it is timelessly perfect. It needs no updating. You know, so often we live in a technology-crazed age, and maybe you have it even more frequently than I do. So often our technology needs an update. And so maybe you look at your phone and it says, well, you now need to update to this new system. Uh, and then you have to go through some steps and all of a sudden the new is unfolded. And, and maybe they even explain if you read all the fine print, you know, this is better because this reason, that reason, and these other reasons. And maybe even in some of your equipment uh, you have the advancements of technology uh, and your equipment, maybe even your monitor yield uh, needs to be updated. God's law never needs to be updated. It never can be updated. Because it is a perfect expression of God's very nature. And what is God's nature? God's nature, first of all, could be described as a majestic nature. As Isaiah saw in Isaiah 6, 
verses 1 through 5, he saw God where high and lifted up, surrounded by this infinite expression of majesty. And so we dare not have low thoughts of God. We certainly celebrate the idea and the truth that He condescends down to us, but God in His very nature is not like us. And perhaps one of the most important things for the church in our day, including all of us in and of ourselves, to rediscover and to reappreciation is the simple fact that God is God. Infinite in His majesty. Perfect in His holiness. Absolute in His sovereignty. He rules over all things. And He, of course, has the right to rule over all things because He alone is God. And we hear so much talk about justice in our own day, but much of it lacks an understanding that when we talk about justice, we must first begin with God. And what is justice? Justice is to do that which is right. That which is objectively right. And God is just. He must and He will do that which is right. And in His sovereign justice, God has the authority to establish moral laws that apply to the entirety of the human race. No person ever exists, nor ever will exist, who is outside the jurisdiction of God's law. Now you can read uh, of some barbaric laws of nations, perhaps in the Middle East, and you can say, well, I am thankful that I don't live under that jurisdiction. I am thankful that my daughters as well as my sons can go to school and receive an education. No one can ever say, I am thankful that I am outside of God's jurisdiction. Because every single person, whether old, whether young, whether male, whether female, whether rich or whether poor, is born, lives, and dies underneath the jurisdiction of a sovereign and righteous God. Not only does God have the sovereign right to establish moral value according to His own nature, God also has the right and the responsibility to punish those who do well as well as reward, rather to punish those who do evil as well as reward those who do well. And for our purposes here, allow us just to elaborate briefly upon this idea of God's justice, of of His retributive justice, that God will punish every single sin. Now, I've said it that way purposefully. I did not say that God will punish every single sinner. I said God will, in accordance with His perfect righteousness, and indeed He has to in order to maintain His sovereign righteousness, God will punish every single sin. And you'll notice that's where our catechism begins with question 10. Certainly not. God will not permit such disobedience and rebellion to go unpunished. He is terribly angry with the sin we are born with as well as our actual sins. God will punish them, that is, our sins, by a just judgment both now and in eternity. And this brings up uh, the whole doctrine, the whole reality of hell. And now I fully recognize that this topic, this doctrine, even the very mention of this word in this context is not something that is 
often received with appreciation. Isn't it striking that in society you can use the word hell in a variety of circumstances and people will hardly even flinch, but you begin to preach about the reality of hell and then people become very, very concerned. But we have to preach about the reality of hell because it is just that, a reality. And although there are those who pretend to be always wiser than the Bible who would say that hell is just simply some experience here in this life, some unfavorable experience. Hell is not something that is experienced in its fullness here in this life, but rather hell is the locality in which God sends those who are damned to experience for all of eternity His righteous wrath and indignation. Hell is the place in which there is the gnashing of teeth, the torment of body and of soul. Why do we preach about such things? To be faithful to the Word of God. And also out of a pastoral concern that not a soul of our hearers would ever find themselves in such a place. And I, you, we, whoever hears these words, we need to know that there is a reality of hell for those who die without faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. I understand that that is not necessarily the most favorable thing that we want to hear, but it's the truth of the Word of God. And if you measure within the Bible among all of the prophets, among all of the prophets and apostles, among all the prophets, apostles, and psalmists, who preached about hell the most is the one who is greater than a prophet, an apostle, and a psalmist, the Lord Jesus Christ. So if we are going to acknowledge the authority of Christ as the one who brings revelation from God, then we also have to acknowledge the reality of a locality of hell. And hell is just. Hell is a just expression of God's wrath upon those who are commandment breakers, those who violate His commands. Ephesians 5, uh, verse 6, and perhaps we'll take the time this evening uh, to put those words right in front of our eyes if we turn there. I was just going to uh, reference it, but if you're so inclined, if you'll turn there, you'll notice in print these words translated the inspired Word of God. Ephesians 5, verse 6, "...let no one deceive you with empty words." For because of these things, now there, when you read these things, allow me just to go back up beginning at verse 3, but fornication, that would include any type of sexual intimacy outside of the bond of sacred marriage, whether that fornication be heterosexual in nature or homosexual in nature, fornication, all uncleanness or covetousness, let it not even be named among you as is fitting for saints, neither filthiness nor foolish talking nor coarse jesting which are not fitting but rather giving of thanks. 
For this you know that no fornicator, unclean person, or covetous man who is an idolater has any inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. Let no one deceive you with empty words. Notice there the danger of deception. Empty words are those words which come perhaps from pulpits and perhaps through even those who proclaim to be teachers and preachers who say there is no such thing to worry about as divine condemnation and wrath. And what a woeful thing that pulpits and airwaves and internet ministries are filled with persons who would say such empty words, who would contextualize God's law and say, sure, maybe that unclean sexual immorality was forbidden in the first century when Paul was a preacher, but now we are in the 21st century. Now we are evolved in our understanding, and morality must keep up with our evolution of our understanding and our social constructs. The Apostle Paul says, don't let anyone deceive you with these empty words. There is a danger of deception. And so the warning tonight also is, don't be deceived by the empty words of those who would peddle the message that peace, peace to all, regardless of what type of sexual immorality that they may find themselves engaged in. No, the Apostle Paul says, because of these things, the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. And so there is the reality of the wrath of God. The wrath of God that comes upon the sons of disobedience, those who walk contrary to the commandments of God with impenitent hearts. And if they continue in such a pattern of life, and if they die in such a state, the Bible is clear that the eternal prospect for such persons is hell itself. Don't be deceived. Hell is real. And hell is just. And in hell, God exercises His divine wrath upon impenitent sinners. And so if we try to say, I don't think my misery is just because I don't think God's law is just, the answer is, do not be deceived. Well, if that question is satisfied, uh, then we turn our attention to the second objection that humanity might bring forward. That is, God's requirements are unjust because of my limited ability. Uh, There is such a thing as moral culpability, Am I to be held responsible for my actions? And we understand, of course, the injustice that would be expressed if a parent were to give a toddler a task or a job around the home that was beyond his capability. I mean, you don't turn to the one-year-old and say, now, take the trash out. And if you disobey, you will be disciplined. Because you understand the one-year-old does not have the ability to carry out that instruction, and so they do not have what we call moral culpability or moral responsibility. And so the objection then comes this way. Uh, You have just told us in the most recent Lord's Days that we're fallen by nature and unable to keep the commandments of God. How then can God hold me accountable for that which I am not able to accomplish? And the answer simply is this, you, I, we had the ability to accomplish that which God requires of us. 
We were created in the image of God, not only with a mind and a will and affections in regards to our faculties of our soul, but by the original creative design of God, we had true knowledge, we had true righteousness, we had true holiness. But if you eclipse the reality of man's reckless rebellion against God, yeah, then this objection makes sense, but when you understand the historical narrative that Scripture provides, that the humanity, the human race, had these gifts but threw them recklessly away, then you understand God is still just and God is still absolutely righteous if He demands of that from us, which we had the ability to do. Now imagine, boys and girls, for a moment, and I know that you'll have to kind of work with me with this analogy, uh, but imagine that you're going to get lunch at tulip time. Imagine you're going to go to one of those uh, little, little food vendors Maybe, and I hope this doesn't become a distraction. I hope you're not thinking now what you're going to get. But imagine you're going to get lunch. And uh, your, your mom's very gracious, and she gives you $10. I hope that's enough to cover what you're going to get for lunch. Let's say it's, 10, let's say it's $20. Very gracious. Tulip time. So she gives you $20. And she says, now, you can go buy what you need for lunch. And let's see you go and you look at that $20 bill, and you say, I don't like my mom today. And you throw that $20 bill in the ground after you tear it apart in pieces. And then all of a sudden you become hungry. And so you go back to your mom, you say, Mom, you didn't feed me. What do you think your mom's going to say? Well, why didn't you buy lunch? Now imagine you say, I couldn't buy lunch. I didn't have any money. Well, I gave you $20. I know, but I ripped it up and I threw it on the ground. And now I'm hungry. I dare say you'd be hungry the rest of the day. And you understand I think at some level, that your mother is just when she says, don't you dare use that as an excuse. You had the $20. You threw the $20 away in a rebellious act. It's not my fault you're hungry. It's not God's fault that we don't have the ability any longer to fulfill His commands. We had the ability. We just recklessly, in an act of rebellion, threw it away. And I hope and I pray that none of us are anticipating meeting God on Judgment Day saying, sorry, but I couldn't keep your commandments. You didn't give me the ability to do so. Because God is just. He gave us the ability. We just recklessly threw it away in an act of rebellion. And therefore, God is perfectly just to demand of us perfect obedience. A perfect obedience which we are no longer able to express. So the problem 
isn't in God's law or in God's nature. The problem isn't in the fact that we're no longer able to keep the commandments of God. So two of the three questions have been raised and answered, and we're still left in our own miserable condition for which we are responsible. And then there is what one Reformed commentator has described as the whimperings of a rebellious child, and that's seen in question 11. But isn't God also merciful? Now, the, the implication behind that question is, isn't he merciful so that he will not exercise his justice? Isn't he merciful in the sense that he will just say, okay, my righteous requirement is no longer in effect? And sadly, this is what many a person has when they come to their conception about God, that God is just this kind, grandfatherly figure who loves to kind of wink at the mischievousness of his children here on earth. And perhaps on the external, he has a certain crusty attitude, but deep down, he's just a soft teddy bear who will smile and say, ah, you tried your best. It's all good. Well, that may be the conception many people have about God, but that is not God. God is merciful. Thanks be to God, He is merciful. We want to state that tonight for the encouragement of the contrite hearts of those who are burdened with the reality of their own guilt. God is certainly merciful. He is gracious. But He's also just, and He's also righteous. And these are what we call the attributes of God, the characteristics of God's very nature. And God reveals these characteristics in Scripture. And the point is, is that in our belief about God, we must know God as He truly is. If we have a false understanding of God's nature, that doesn't change God's nature. This is one of the things that is so confounding about our culture and its gradual slide into a extreme subjectivism. Right? People say nowadays in our culture, well, you know, if, if you believe that, then that makes it so. Even to the unimaginable extents of, hey, you know, if you think you're some furry animal, then, well, I guess that's what you are. But when you apply that to God, that's what the Bible calls idolatry. And just because a person thinks God is a certain way, that does not change one iota about God's real nature. And so it's absolutely essential that our conception of God's nature be that which is formed in an agreement with His self-revelation because God has graciously shown us who He is. He has revealed to us His attributes. And in His attributes, one cannot be pitted against the other. And one attribute cannot eclipse the other. And so God Himself, in perhaps His first, uh, certainly not His first expression, but perhaps the clearest expression of His being, if you flip back to Exodus 34, verse 6 and 7, you'll notice here there is a self-revelation of God, but notice the balance between these attributes. Exodus 34, verse 6 and 7, and the Lord passed before him that is Moses and proclaimed the Lord, the Lord God, merciful, gracious, long-suffering, abounding in goodness and truth, keeping mercy for thousands. But notice that there's also then these attributes Forgiving 
iniquity and transgression and sin, by no means clearing the guilty. And so there has to be this combination. We must reckon with the fact that, yes, God is merciful, but He's also just, and His justice demands to be satisfied. And the way God's mercy exercises itself is by the substitutionary provision of one who would satisfy His justice in our place. And so when we begin to reckon with the fact that God is infinitely righteous and just, but He's also merciful and gracious, how can those all be wed together? How can those be reconciled? And the answer, I hope your heart is already beginning to, figuratively speak, beat with anticipation. The answer is only in the person of Jesus Christ. And only especially on the cross of Jesus Christ. Because there on the cross you see all of the attributes of God exercised. You look to the cross and you see the justice of God. You look to the cross and you see the righteousness of God. You look to the cross and you see the mercy of God and the grace of God. And so all of our theological knowledge about the attributes of God and all of our personal acquaintance with our own misery must bring us to the point that we find ourselves once again at the foot of the cross. And thanks be to God that the next section of the Catechism deals with just that, the manner of our deliverance. We would just preview it with this and say the manner of our deliverance is that in the person of the Lord Jesus Christ, the attributes of God come to a perfect, harmonious expression. So that in His mercy, God is righteous. And in His righteousness, God is merciful. To those who look with faith and hope and anticipation to the cross of the Lord Jesus Christ. But a word of warning tonight to anyone who would eventually confront God apart from Christ. And these words come out of a concern, not motivated by any specific instance or communication or person, but more generally a concern that there are many persons who would seek to deceive. Just recently this week, and it's not known to anyone in the congregation or the community, heard a, of a conversation where an individual was succumbing to the lie that hell's not a real place. Just the experience of a really bad day. Don't be deceived. Hell is a real place. Hell is a real place where God's righteousness punishes impenitent sinners for their sin for eternity. And if those words find the ears of anyone who's living a life apart from faith and apart from repentance, I implore you with all the earnestness that I can muster up in my soul, straightway get to the cross before it's too late. By the providence of God, I can preach to you tonight, but I make no guarantees about your tomorrow. I can't even make a guarantee about your tonight. 
I can say this, because if you hear these words, you're still living. Today is the day of grace. But about tomorrow, next week, next month, I offer no guarantees. So tonight, make sure you are found at the foot of the cross where righteousness and mercy perfectly weave themselves together in the person and the work of the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. Our Father in heaven, we praise you for who you are. Uh, We try to grasp by your word and by your spirit a balanced, comprehensive understanding of your nature, of your righteousness and also of your mercy, of your justice and of your grace. And we desire that as we contemplate these theological truths that our contemplation might not simply be vain speculation, but that in all of this, uh, the objections and the excuses that our nature is so prone to bring up might be silenced, that we might come with broken hearts, with empty hands, but with believing hearts to the cross of the Lord Jesus Christ for full and free salvation. We ask this in his name. Amen.